Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvest and Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. You got your host here, Justin Townsend, and uh, excited for a, a special guest today. Um, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, fishing around the U.S., around the, the coastal part of the U.S., I would say, too, so uh, it's pretty awesome. And then uh, we'll, we'll go into talking a little bit, some fish recipes as well, and then... We'll just see where the conversation goes, but I'm excited. So news updates for me really uh, gearing up on uh, Thursday. I'm heading back up to Wyoming to try to fulfill my uh, elk tag, uh, trying to finish up the elk season, that being the last tag I'm holding on to. So uh, fingers crossed for this one last weekend up there. I got some good intel that the elk herd's down off the mountain and – just hoping to get into uh, where they are, and hopefully uh, everything uh, collides for a, a great trip. So AJ's coming in from Austin, and we'll be driving up with my family, who's going to be hanging out at the at the house we have up there, and uh, we'll just be uh, enjoying the weekend. Hopefully, hopefully the weather's good. It's going to be a little cold, a little snow on the ground, but it's all good. So, uh, also to remind everybody, we still have Antler and Finn podcast rolling strong. So that's our uh, audio cookbook. You can find that on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. That's there. Just look up Antler and Finn. It's got a bunch of cool recipes. Uh, we're working on expanding that here in 2022. So uh, expect some more recipes on there. It just kind of talks through the ingredients, talks through the story, talks through the steps, and really like you can pause and play at any moment uh, as as you're cooking if you wanted to listen to the recipe versus read it. That's a cool place for that. And then we have our Facebook community page, which, uh, Corey, I don't know if you noticed, I changed the name. I saw that. Yeah. I, I think it's I think it's appropriate. Yeah, so it's uh, Eat More Wild Food is our uh, community page name. So it, I think it's more fun than the, what was it, the Wild Fishing Game community it was before? Yeah, yeah. So now if you want to find it, uh, find us there. It is wild, Eat More Wild Food. So we're kind of gone. If you've noticed a lot of our merchandise and a lot of our uh, signage and social media, we're, we're very much embracing the whole concept of eating more wild food. And uh, given that's the topic of our show, uh, it's very fitting, but I thought it would be a good landing spot for our community page's name uh, in the change. So go look that up. That's a great place to interact with, with me, with Corey, with the rest of the Harvest and Nature crew, field staff, writers, managing staff, everybody. We're all there hanging out, sharing pictures, sharing stories, sharing recipes. So hop in. Uh, it's a great place just to chillax. Everybody's pretty respectful too. So good to go. Uh, and as always, we got hats for reviews. So, uh, if you punch the five star button, uh, on whatever podcast platform you're listening to and leave a written review, we'll read it over the air. We thank you for that. And then, once we call your name out, we will usually call some identifier, either your 
your podcast sign on name or your social media handle or whatever it is that you use to rate the podcast. And uh, we'll give you a quick shout out and ask you to pick your favorite hat off the website and send us your, uh, your mailing address via email. And then we will send you a hat. So pretty simple. Just helps us out with the reviews, getting them up there in uh, Apple Podcast World as far as ranking. So I don't know. I'll turn it over to you, Corey. You got any updates? Well, it's been a while since I've been on. I've been kind of MIA for a while. Yep. Um, but it's good to be back on. But uh, I can't remember the last time I was on. It was, what, September? Is that Probably. Has it been that long? Yeah, I think it has. So Before deer season. Yeah, before deer. So I got a doe in our early muzzleloader season. And then... Um, here the in the middle part of our rifle season I managed to get my buck. Nice big wide heavy six point that I was happy with. And interesting enough, um, that's the first buck I've ever gotten on a deer drive. I've never I've always gotten it while sitting hmm. in the stand on the first day. Okay. And that's the latest in the season I've ever gotten a buck. I've never I've, I usually get it on the first day or not at all. So it was uh it was good. I was happy. It's this like a. It was kind of it's a. It's a very <laughs> subtle brag, Corey. Like, it's all right. I just go out in the stand. <laughs> it, it, deer walks out, falls down in front of my stand. I'm done. <laughs> well, no, it's 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 either that it's it's that or nothing. And there's a lot of times it's been nothing. So that's fair. No, not not trying to brag. So it's you're uh you're up two deer this year. Yeah, just two deer so. And far. then what was last year? Um, Six. Four. Oh, close enough. Um. But our rifle season just ended, and our flintlock season will open up after Christmas, the day after Christmas. Nice. So I'll give my give my wife a, like a two week break, and then I'll go back out in the woods. I'm still uh, <laughs> I'm still looking at uh, airline tickets. I don't know. For uh, you discouraged me when you're like flying into Buffalo is risky. Yeah, flying into Buffalo in the middle of winter is, is could be risky, but uh, um, yeah, I think it's we'll I see. think it's worth the risk. You do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'll keep looking at airline so, tickets then. Good. 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 Yeah. We'll 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 find you a flintlock that you can borrow. Although, the uh, black powder industry. So, GoX is the black powder that most people have used mm-hmm. for flintlocks and for muzzleloaders. Um, their plant. I think it blew up, what? and then they closed it down for good. Well, so uh, black powder is a little hard to come by nowadays. Holy smokes! I didn't even know that. Yeah, it's a that would be an interest interesting story to look into. But um, yeah, wow, that's crazy. And then I'll I'll tie this back and I'll do a little plug here. You and your buddies there last year did a whole like flintlock prep episode podcast episode, right? Yeah, yeah, like what what equipment you need and how to load and shoot. I think we went over that and the um, the frustrations that come with flintlock hunting, which is one reason why I like to uh, do it. But yeah, yeah. So I can't remember the episode number. I I can't either. We'll put it in the show notes. But um, Pennsylvania is one of the few states that still has a flintlock only season. Correct. Yes, that is correct. I think. There was something in Virginia or West Virginia, and then I think I just read, was it Maryland or somewhere in that area, um, is going to have uh, like a three-day primitive season in February. Oh, cool. I think, but but Pennsylvania is like the only one that has had like a, a set season for a long period of time. Okay. Nice. All right, well, um, some awesome updates. Um, welcome back to being on the show, Corey. We've missed you very dearly. You. Your soothing, <laughs> your soothing voice and beard have been missed. So uh, <laughs> I pre- appreciate that. Yeah, 
Well, I will go ahead and introduce our guest. Des- our guest today, then. So uh, he's a lifelong outdoorsman, writer, artist, lure craftsman. He's also an officer in the U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, he served in numerous leadership positions, including the commanding officer of the North Pacific Regional Fisheries Training Center in Kodiak, Alaska, and as the captain of a Coast Guard cutter in the North Atlantic. He specializes in fishery conservation, search and rescue, and maritime law enforcement. He's got a new book, Fishing the Wild Waters, an angler's search for peace and adventure in the wilderness. So, Connor Sullivan, welcome to the Wild Fishing Game podcast. Justin, Corey, thank you for having me. This is great. Absolutely. Always good to chat with a fellow Coastie. So, <laughs> it, it is a bummer. We have one more, uh, one more Coastie who's normally on the show, and unfortunately he had a prior commitment tonight, uh, so he's not able to make it. But uh, Colin lives up in Oregon, up in Bend. So... Uh, Sim- similar, closer to you than I am, I would say. <laughs> Fantastic. So, uh, please uh, in- introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit of, uh, more about you, uh, where you're from, how you got introduced to the outdoors. Yeah. Uh, again, thanks for having me. Uh, Connor Sullivan. I currently live in Juneau, Alaska. Um, you know, I've been a lifelong fisherman. Uh, I grew up, you know, where you're from is always a hard question. I grew up in a, a military family. My dad was in the Coast Guard. Um, he retired you know, after 36 years, so I think I lived in like 12 different states. So, like, you know, I was born in Louisiana, graduated high school in Ohio, but I really don't have a lot of allegiance to either. Um, had some really formative years in Hawaii growing up, which I kind of outlined in the book a little bit of that led me into offshore fishing. Uh, my dad was a hardcore fisherman, and uh, myself, and my three younger brother, or two younger brothers, um, were always out there with him, you know, chasing fish no matter where we lived. Um, and I, you know, as you kind of move around and then, you know, I went to the Coast Guard Academy, um, for college and, and as I moved around, you, uh, you start getting dialed into local fisheries and, you know, three years, three or four years at a time at a certain location. And, you know, a lot more is really pretty phenomenal fishing spots in Hawaii, Alaska, New England, uh, South Carolina. Um, yeah, started, started kind of getting, getting, you know, dialed in. I always had a boat. And uh, my mom is a professional writer, so I'm kind of amalgam of both. You know, I, I took to the nice. sea and, and kind of went down that path. And then, especially I started having uh, kids, and my wife and I started having families. I had a little more time to, you know, put down the fishing rod, pick up a pen once in a while, and, and download some of these stories. Um, and uh, I always had a lifelong goal of writing a book. And it took me a couple of years, as you know, uh, with, you know, trying to balance, you know, work and life and family but uh, got to it and uh, book just came out last week that's awesome congratulations that's a this is a huge step and uh you know a lot of people want to write books and think about writing books but you know there's a, a small population that actually follow through and so congratulations <laughs> on that Thanks. so also to I, I i talked about in your bio lure craftsman how how does one become a lure craftsman, and where did you find that hobby? Uh, so, I mean, it starts, I mean, any fisherman, I think, is always, you know, working the next angle of trying to, uh, you know, whether it's fly tying or or carving lures out of wood. Uh, you know, so I started probably fly tying. I remember my dad brought home a kit. He was in, like, second grade, and, uh, and he tied what I remember being, like, this, like, pristine, like, fly, and I was like, you know, I tried to tie it up and look like a fur ball, you know, but it, it kind of stuck with me. And so I, I was doing that, and I'd even, like, you know, take fur from our dog and, you know, start tying, you know, trout flies wherever I could growing up. And then especially living in uh, Connecticut, kind of in early high school years, I started making a lot of, like, wooden surface lures, you know, for mm-hmm. bluefish. It was pretty simple. Like, I was literally taking, like, a limb from a tree and putting in a couple screw eyes on either side. And if you're really fast up on the surface, you probably get a bluefish to, you know, snap at it. And, uh, and you know, you started learning about working wood a little bit and, and how to, you know, drill through the wood instead of just putting eye, eye holes or eye screws in it. And, you know, so now you're, you're through drilling it and actually making it really strong. And then when I was living in Hawaii um, three years ago, uh, I started really getting into uh, resin resin work. So Okay. I've seen a lot of those offshore trolling lures are, you know, it's made of resin. There's a, there's an insert and then it's, it's molded resin. 
And uh, I've always seen those, you know, especially growing up in Hawaii, you buy those and they're expensive and they look like works of art. So I couldn't really crack the case of, of how, how they're making these. I remember as a kid, actually, I broke one open once just to see what was inside of it. Uh, but, you know, buying a couple books, there's a book called Lure Making 101 by Jim Rizzuto, who's a really famous lure maker. Um, I started, you know, getting it figured out and, you know, a lot of trial and error, a lot of resin uh, filled everywhere. But I started making these, these pretty cool looking lures and living there as I, I would make a lure. Uh, you know, it took me a couple of days. I'd skirt it, and by the weekend, I had behind my boat, and I was testing it out and seeing how it ran. And you know, if it got hit by a fish, I could then make a cast of that one, and I knew that was a solid, solid lure. And you just keep tweaking it. it. You know, did that for four years, and it was just really rewarding to to not only catch a fish, but catch a fish in something you created. Uh, yeah. So it's just kind of a, a neat hobby. Awesome. What's uh? Yeah, I always uh, always felt good when I'd catch a trout or a steelhead on the flies that I tied. Absolutely. Makes you makes you feel I, good. I, I've, ne- I've never done it, so I, I am behind the times. I don't know. <laughs> I think about if I have the patience. I also think if I have the bandwidth to try to sit down and uh, <laughs> tie flies. Um, but the... I've definitely seen a lot of guys do the, the resin work for some of the, the lures. I know there were there's a couple brothers I used to help process their wild pigs from in central Florida down in the keys. And they had, they basically started like a a gun and tackle shop in key West and they would cast their own lures and then sell them to, to fishermen be like some of the commercial guys. But because they, they grew up there, they knew the waters, they knew what the fish were hitting. And, uh, I think it was just kind of, they really honed in on the process and then honed in on the patterns that everybody wanted and just, you know, replicate it. So it was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. So yeah, do you, it's really neat. It's a, uh, it's a, just a kind of a special craft and, and once you get, get into it, it's pretty hard to, to stop making them. Do you, do you still do it now? I haven't since I've been up in Alaska. Uh, you know, there's, I'm tempted to try it for uh do it really small ones for salmon trolling. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's not, just the species kind of difference up here is there's not as much of a need, you know, for a, for a kind of a resin type lure, but I'm, I've been thinking about it lately. Uh, so I, I might give it a shot this winter. Yeah. Let, let us know, let us know if you do and how it turns out. That'd be, I'd be cool to hear about that for sure. Yeah. So let's, uh, all right, here's the fun questions. These are one of Corey's questions, but I always like to ask them. I'm going to steal this one. So, uh, what, do you have fish in the freezer now, or do you have game in the freezer? What, what do you have? That's a great question. I, I love that. I think I'm going to use that for, as an intro from now on, talking to people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I have a, uh, a sick of black-tailed deer in the freezer. Um, I got some red king crab, a little bit left. Uh, silver salmon, sockeye salmon, and halibut are, are kind of what I got in there, plus some uh, dungeness crab. Ooh, nice. So what it, what do you look for what what are you looking forward to most out of those things to cook next? You know it's it's pretty hard to beat uh, deer. Uh, yep. You know, it's a, Agreed. Especially with, with uh, little kids, like it's pretty easy. Um, we had some last night. Actually, I brought some guava chips from Hawaii with me, so I had like a little guava smoke on venison steaks out there. You know, standing on the snow pile grilling last night. It turned out great. Ooh. Like the the only guy in Alaska smoking deer with with uh, guava chips. Guava <laughs> chips. I like I'm, it. I'm all over the road. Uh, yeah, I haven't heard. Do you get a Do you get a good flavor from the guava chips? Because I've never. I mean, if you do it right, it does. I mean, like, there's like there's there's too much of a good thing. It's like for I have like a gastro, and I'll I'll take like a tuna fish can, I'll put some chips in it, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll get them kind of wet, and I'll put them down on the burner. So just as you're grilling it, it's just like, you know, there's a light smoke going, you know, not, not so much that it's, it's overpowering, but you know, with the gas grill, there's really no like intrinsic, you know, flavor, like with a charcoal grill. So it kind of adds a little, little profile to it. Nice. I didn't even, uh, uh, I didn't even ask do you, do you hunt in Alaska as well? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm still chasing blacktail. Uh, the season goes to January 1st. So nice. Uh, I was out there even this weekend, you know, um, walking through some pretty deep snow looking looking for a deer 
I uh, I too went out this week and I my uh, I had an Eastern Plains whitetail tag, uh, but I was my wife had to work on Saturday, so I was hanging out with my kids and I have a two year old and a nine year old, and a couple weekends ago I took my nine year old out. I actually took both of them out and put him in the backpack and we went out for whitetail. And then she's like, I don't want to go walking around again, so we went to uh, one of the state wildlife areas here. It's a. Uh, it's got probably a dozen different lakes on there. It's like 30, 45 minutes from my house, so a little bit of a commitment. We drove out there, get out there, and I'm like, man, nobody's here. I was like, this is great. Like the ponds are open, everything's good, and uh, you know, from the parking lot, you can look down, you can see the ponds, and I was like, all right, cool, like completely empty, no waterfowl. Didn't think anything of it. We loaded up all the gear in the wagon. I put my son in the wagon. My daughter's carrying her backpack. You know, I got my shotgun and we start walking down and it's probably, probably half mile down to the first set of lakes. And, uh, we'd picked the lake at the very back, which was about a mile from the gate, which not too bad if you're dragging that wagon, but we get to the first set of lakes and they're iced over. <laughs> I'm like, well, <laughs> I guess here we go. So we, uh, we, uh, walked all the way back to the back and i was like you know what i don't even feel like busting ice so we found one of the the back pond has a grassy area and so i just took all my goose decoys and uh poked them in the ground there and just we instead of facing towards the water we turned around in the blind and faced the the grass and just i was like hopefully some geese come by but uh yeah (laughs) it was uh, a little frustrating the the ice but yeah something i don't ever think about being new to colorado is like oh yeah the ponds are iced over (laughs) yep that's it so but um nice i i'm excited i never thought about the guava chips smoking with that so that's that's a cool tip to come back around to that (laughs) um it's uh, I think in Key West that would probably be one of the few places you could grow guava, and I think it's listed as a uh, a potential like invasive species there in the Keys because uh, it, it can like run rampant. So interesting tidbit. Yeah. So all right, well let's chat a little bit about your book. Uh, first off, we talked a little bit about how you got into the outdoors, but what really. What really made you pull the trigger to decide to like go through with the book? Um, it's funny. So I, was, I have uh, I have like a framed picture of a uh, I had from back in like ninth grade. Um, it's like a bunch of fishing pictures, like a collage, and in the back that I had like I put a um, like a kind of like a wasn't what's the name for it like a a time capsule thing like i wrote like a letter to myself like you know life goals or whatever it says you know don't open to to 2021 and i opened it up and and one of those was you know write a fishing book or you would have wrote a fishing book so it was kind of i don't remember writing that and and at the time in eighth grade i would have caused like an audible gasp anyone saying i was gonna write a book i think um, <laughs> but i always kind of had the you know the, the drive to to kind of you know put some of my what I've learned and, and experiences to, to paper and you know, a lot of it came from just going every time I go to a bookstore even now like I immediately go into the fishing section and it's like back there like in the sports section and it's there's often like, it's like the kind of the how-to book like how to tie a knot um, and then there's kind of like a maybe like more of a poetic trout fishing book which I enjoy those too but it wasn't seems like always like kind of something missing like kind of something for the rest of us um, and I kind of wanted to, I guess, fill in that niche a little bit, um, you know, so the book I wrote, Fishing Wild Waters, it's, it's part how-to, it's a little bit of fishing philosophy, and it just kind of goes through, you know, fishing as a, as kind of a vehicle that takes us to a world that most folks don't see, and that, you know, that may be 50 miles offshore on the 100 fathom curve, or, you know, might be waist deep in a cold river up here in Alaska, um, you know, this past this past September, my little brother Rory came up for the weekend. We're fishing for salmon out in the in the channel, and the sun is just coming up. And uh, it's a little later sunrise that time of year, and the fog's trying to fight for the sun for control of, of the morning. And I hear this long exhale, and it's kind of weird. I remember like my dad taking a nap on the couch. I'm like, what is that? And I look out, and there's you know a pot of orcas going by. Oh, cool! I'm just cruising down the channel, and there's you know a bald eagle up in the 
tree above us, uh, you know, calling out and the sea lions. It's like, I would have never been there if it wasn't for that fly rod in my hand. And it's just, you know, it's those moments that, that just like, you know, make me so happy, so happy that I, I love fishing and they put me in these, these cool spots and, and I, I just started writing these stories down and, and uh, you get enough of those and you get yourself a book. That's awesome. What's uh, that's really awesome. It was a good. You painted a good picture there. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tacovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tacovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. All right. So, uh, in the book, you talk about, uh, the three main fisheries that, that you've kind of had a lot of experience in, um, in new England in Alaska and Hawaii. And, and I'd love if we could just kind of go through a little bit of each one of those. And if you've got any stories to share with us, uh, <clears throat> not to take away from your book, but just to kind of draw us in, uh, I, I think it would be great because they're all very diverse and different uh, fisheries for the most part, different habitats, different fish, all that. So, uh, oh, please. Yeah, you bet. Um, yeah, so New England is, you know, there's kind of three main fisheries we saw was really focused on was uh, bluefin, tuna, uh, stripers or striped bass, as you're called, and cod. Um, you know, the book kind of starts off with me uh, learning some hard lessons uh, fishing for bluefin, tuna out of Gloucester. I was living there at the time uh, by myself and was in my mid-20s and just bought a boat. First time I owned a boat you know, by myself, not with my dad. So it was a steep learning curve and it was an older boat, like a 1988 Invader, like a real heavy fiberglass, uh, single engine, single battery. Uh, and I was using that to run offshore to a place called Stellwagen, <clears throat> Stellwagen Bank, which is about 15 miles south of Cape Ann. And uh, run out there chasing bluefin. It's the shelf is like a kind of a sickle shape and it comes up from a couple hundred feet up to 90 feet and and a lot of times the the bluefin would be kind of feeding on that edge there and uh it kind of you know goes through a couple uh a couple swings and misses and at times had uh had some fish on and lost them but it there was one trip in october where i uh ended up hooking this bluefin by myself on a solo trip on a sunday and uh you know, fought this fish and there's out of my pen 6-0 reel which is not a great reel for the uh for the fishery but it was kind of all i could afford at the time and put this big two in it, it's dumping line and uh you know the, the fight kind of goes from hour one to hour two to hour three and and i'm trying to stand up fight and I'm, I'm sitting in my chair fighting it chasing the boat and and you know by the time it gets to hour four is i'm like probably hoping like this fish will break me off it you know it's beat me up and i think i'm out of water, I think I'm hallucinating, I may have hooked the bottom, and uh, ended up putting the rod in a rod holder, like a horizontal rod holder, and just locked the drag down, winching it up, um, you know, just inches at a time, and the fish slowly starts coming up, and uh, at, at hour five, I had to find alongside the boat, and uh, you know, with one hand, gaff it, and you know, lean back as hard as I can to get over the gunnel, and I go to 
you know, kind of switch to take care of the fish and food quality. You got to bleed a tuna fish like that. You know, they actually kind of a warm blooded fish. Mm -hmm. And and if you don't get that blood out, it's going to really affect the quality of the meat. And so I cut its gills and I, I try to be a little too fancy and, uh, reach down and cut the caudal peduncle at the base of its tail. It has like serrated lobster knife. And, you know, after a five-hour fight, your hands are, are pretty weak. And I had the blade up, and I went to touch the tail. And, and so the tail immediately kicked up. I thought it was a dead fish, and it was not. And that serrated lobster knife shot right through the palm of my hand. And, uh, you know, as fast as you can. Oh, no. As just, you know, as you could, you know, snap your fingers, as, you know, from the back of my index finger all the way through to the base of my palm. It was just cut right through. And uh, I remember looking down and seeing inside your hand is hollow and it's just a, you know there's a void in there and it starts filling blood real fast and that blood's pouring out in the deck and you realize that like mm. oh you just made a big mistake here and you're about to pay for it uh you know so i ended up grabbing the first thing i could to stop the bleeding which was a just nasty fishing glove that i was wearing all afternoon with scales and you know slime and blood and i'm trying to look at my hand too much because I, I don't want to pass out that's going to be a, a real sad story uh and i I swallow my pride and I pick cool. up the radio when I, I put out requests for assistance and uh, you know, lucky this uh, the sailboat heard my transmission there nearby and she had, uh, there was a nurse on board and she came over and uh, rolled over in the dinghy and put her gloves on and, and looked at my hand and was like, you need a helicopter. It's like, absolutely not. Like, I'm not taking a ride. You know, I'll just die out here. Nope. Like, what, else, what else you got? And, uh, and as that was kind of going on, as there was a environmental police boat uh, that was also inbound uh, my position, and these guys were really sharp. And they, I jumped on their boat, and one of the officers rode, uh, drove my boat back to the, the harbor. And, uh, and there's an ambulance waiting for me, and ended up at the, the hand specialty surgeon as, as this guy was you know sewing back together a serrated knife cut. Uh, you know, which is, it's just not, a, it wasn't a pretty cut. Oof. And, and uh, you know, my girlfriend showed up, now my wife, and uh, she kind of looked at me and then she looked out at my hand and there's like this ashtray of leftovers. And the nurse was like, yeah, we found your girlfriend. She's in the bathroom. She was, I think, about to pass out on the floor. I was like, oh God, you know, so it was, oh, I was doing my no. full Grundins, you know, covered in fish blood, covered in my blood. And, and it, was, it was a pretty funny scene looking back, I'm sure for them. But got discharged that night, and you know, my hand was you know, completely wrapped up. I'm left-handed, so my dominant hand's out of commission. I went back that night, and I said, luckily some buddies had put that fish on ice for me. It was like in a 50-gallon barrel, just you know, its tail sticking up. So then I went through you know, the process of trying to flay this fish with your off hand, which is you know, really, really funny to do. But got, I got the loins mm-hmm. off and, and got it back that next day. It was you know, vacuum-sealing fish all day. Um, you know, but still took care of that fish and, and got it in the freezer. And it was a good, you know, it was a really important lesson. I would never want to do it again, but, uh, you know, it definitely, it can happen to you. And, you know, big game fishing is, is like big game hunting. Like there's, there's consequences to your actions. And I learned a ton that year. And, you know, from then forward just you know, no, no green fish come in the boat. You know, I made myself a really good harpoon, uh, you know, for Christmas, mm-hmm. all my family got me like quick clod and all these, you know, bandages and they're, you know, half joking, half serious, but actually it's good to keep, you know, a trauma <laughs> kit with you now. And, um, yep. so that, that was my intro to bluefin tuna fishing. Uh, oh man. Yeah. That's a, that's quite the experience too. Ooh. I just think about the big cut on the hand, but your, is your hand good now? Do you have a, you still have dexterity? Yeah, fully functional. Um, you know, my, my little bro is a physical therapist. He's like, if you were just a couple millimeters off, you were, I guess there's a nerve there that controls your, your thumb. And if you were to cut that, your, your thumb would, uh, they call it million dollar nerve because if you cut that, you generally get a, you know, you get a settlement for about a million dollars because it's, uh, you have no, no thumb, uh, no, no chance to use your thumb. So it's all good. And as I you know, made a full recovery and besides a little bit of damaged pride is uh, back in business. Well, I'm glad glad you made it through, and <laughs> glad you were able to save the tuna as well. Right, right. <laughs> Got to protect the fish. <laughs> yeah. The the cut I did on my thumb pales in comparison to to that story, and I can't imagine what I would have done in that instance. I probably would have died seriously because I I cut my thumb <laughs> with my bone saw the other day cutting up my deer in the garage, 
whatever that's called when you faint from the sight of blood, vasal vagal syncope or whatever it's called. Like I I saw that and I tried to get everything wrapped up, and then I tried to start back you know back cutting up my deer, and I was like oh, I need to I need to sit down, so I just I just sprawled out on the garage floor for like 15 minutes until I got my bearings. And and this is just a little cut on my thumb, so I can't imagine what I would would have done on a boat with half my hand cut off. Yeah, you know, it, it would have been bad. You <laughs> hopefully you'll, don't you'll, find out. Yeah, hopefully. Not. You always think about it too at those points where like the accidents happen. You know, I've I've cut my hand like in the kitchen cooking. You know, uh, I. I don't know if you know, I used to be a professional chef and you end up with a lot of little knife cuts and nicks and stuff here. And it, there's never a clean rag around. Like when, <laughs> when you need to grab, when you need to grab something where you're bleeding bad, there's never anything clean. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. So, um, you mentioned grabbing the, the dirty fishy glove and that's the first thing that popped in my mind. I was like, it's so true. There's just never anything within reach. That's not like, <laughs> but uh well also too you you chased uh some some monster cod there in new england as well what what's it, it is, like yeah I, i've never fished for cod so uh completely greenhorn when it comes to cod fishing i i love cod fishing it's <clears throat> and it's just you know it's a very historical fish in, in our country's history and uh, you know mark kerlansky wrote a book called cod it's like just a mm-hmm. fascinating read about how it's you know its impact on and even just like Western civilization. But, uh, you know, I, I grew up reading stories about fishing cod and even, you know, when I was younger in the nineties, like the stock wasn't doing good. It, it's just been, been really hammered for, uh, you know, for decades and, and it's a pretty bad spot. Um, so I think a lot of where fish for these days is, is just, you know, a small fraction of what that biomass once was, but you know, it's like the shipping baselines thing is you, you don't really know what was there, by this point, but uh, when I was younger, I was, I was fished for cod out of a on a headboat out of su- southeast New England or southeast Connecticut called the My Joy. I was in you know by eighth grade, I'd kind of be a quasi deckhand and be you know I'd help out gaff and fish to clean the boat and get a ten dollar trip out of it. And I still I you know rarely caught you know keeper cod. They had to be like nineteen inches, and it was hard to even find one that big. Uh, but up in Gloucester, that's kind of still like the center mass for, for this fishery, and there's still, you know, viable year-round cod stock. So, uh, you know, Stellwagen Bank's a really popular spot, but mm-hmm. I kind of, my brother and my dad and I ended up finding this really neat inshore spot that was like real close to the rocks that, you know, boats would drive over heading offshore. And uh, we'd get up at two in the morning and be out there, you know, ready to go just at first light. And there's a small window of time, which these fish would turn on. And, uh, you know, we ended up getting some, you know, 20, 30, uh, I think I got a 41 day and my brother got a, a 50 pound cod, which is just really not found at all Holy these, these days. That's was, a big fish. It was really cool. And, uh, obviously, you know, to do it with family is always special too. And, and to kind of do it, you feel like, you know, inshore where you're kind of pulling like a heist and mm-hmm. no one else is fishing. It kind of makes it a little sweeter too. So, uh, that was, yeah, some really good ground fishing up there. Cod, Haddock, Pollock. It's a you know, you can fish in the wintertime for them. It's a great way of kind of getting out of the house if you can find a, a decent day and, and get out there and, and, you know, make it a year-round fishery. Nice. That's, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. But yeah, I, I've never, as I mentioned, I've never fished for cod, and I'm just like, it's something still that sounds so majestic, and you think about, you mentioned <laughs> the uh, a lot of the history with it. It's just like... I, I don't think I've ever seen one out of the grocery store, so <laughs> it's pretty sad to say, but just never made it that far up north, so uh, one day. Corey, we, we should go cod fishing while we're in Pennsylvania. I'm just going to lump it all together, <laughs> just everywhere. <laughs> I, I don't I don't think there's any cod fishing in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, no, there totally is. It's close to the shore. <laughs> no, um... Well, so we then can go, we can go ice fishing if you're up here in January. If we're well, it's a little might might not be frozen over by then, but 
I mean, the way things are looking here, well, I don't know. I say that each week differs, but it's looking like ice fishing is going to happen at some point this this next year here in Colorado. But I don't know. The ice has got to thicken up because we were throwing rocks at, at the ice that was on the ponds the other day, and it was still it took big ones to go through, but it still wasn't super super thick. Um, <laughs> but uh, so then after New England, you, you talk a little bit about Alaska, which is where you are now. So are these is this trip based on your current time there or previous times or? Yeah, it was a previous time. I was uh, like 2010 to 2013. I was up on Kodiak, Kodiak Island, which is about 250 miles south of kind of mainland Alaska and the Gulf of Alaska. So it's about the size of Connecticut, uh, you know, almost 10,000 people, about 3,500 uh, Kodiak brown bears. Uh, it's just, you know, I didn't really know at the time, you know, you know, you just kind of what you know is what you know, but there's, it's a really wild spot and you know to the rest of the world alaska's remote but to alaskans kodiak's remote and uh <laughs> this is a lot <laughs> it's it's a lot and it's uh you know the fishing there is just phenomenal and you know almost every trip to the river uh, depending on the time of years you're gonna bump into a bear because you're kind of fishing the same spots um and you're you're running offshore to catch big halibut um where you're up in mountains chasing deer or mountain goats. So it's just a, it's a really cool time. And uh, my wife and I were newlyweds then. So it was just a really good special time in our life of being up there. It made some really close friends. Nice. Awesome. And then uh, a- after that, you you're, you head out to Hawaii, uh, which is, is completely different ecosystem, night and day from Alaska. <laughs> it, yeah, it is. It, it is and isn't. I mean, uh, you know, Hawaii is almost due south from Kodiak and there's days in the summer in, in Kodiak, right? This looks just like Hawaii It's really green, jagged mountains, you know, it's Pacific Rim, you know, so it's, it's a volcanic area mm-hmm. and there's a kind of actually a lot of similarities between, you know, Alaska fishermen and, and Hawaii fishermen, both from a ancestral standpoint and just, you know, a lot of respect for the ocean and, and, the the fish and the animals and, uh, you know, using all, all the, all the parts of fish, the animal and, um, you know, kind of a bit of subsistence living in both spots where you would like, besides chicken, like we never bought any type of like protein and in, in Kodiak, like water's too expensive. Uh, and there's a lot of supply chain issues, especially winter time, like a winter storm would cause you not have any fresh milk. And then, oh, you know, wow. same in Hawaii is we had, you know, I had two freezers full of access deer, marlin, tuna, mahi, mahi, ono, spearfish like it was i don't think we ever bought a steak there you know unless you just wanted to do it at a restaurant so we're you're just kind of living off the land and it was good and you know obviously you know the world's healthiest protein is is the stuff you're catching or hunting mm-hmm. and it's good that's a good catchphrase right there we have to mark that one <laughs> <laughs> write that down yeah on a t-shirt yep <laughs> um so there so I am very intrigued. I've been tossing around a lot, uh, traveling out to Hawaii probably next year, uh, to do access deer hunting. So you mentioned that in peak. So what, what's your, you don't have to give like exact details, but which Island would you find the best, uh, the best access deer hunting? <laughs> These, uh, so there's access deer on three islands, Molokai, Lanai and Maui. Uh, okay. So, you know, you know, start there and, um, uh, you know, Lanai is probably the most well-known. It's kind of the, uh, um, you know, for Hawaii hunters, that's that's where they go. There's some public access spots, um, and, you know, there's an annual hunt there. It's, it's really cool. It's, it's a special hunt. And, uh, you know, those animals were a gift to King Kamehameha uh, back in the 1800s, I believe from India. And so, you know, they've been there a while, and, and there's – you know, just seeing that landscape, that island has just like a really cool uh, feel to it. You know, there's a uh, there's just a lot of said you know history and, and you know uh, stories about you know about Lanai. And it was one day I was packing an access deer, a buck off the top of the mountain, coming back down towards sea level. I'm watching humpback whales, you know, in the channel, uh, you know, jumping and slapping their tails. I'm like, this is you know one of a kind. You're out there, you mm-hmm. know. That's so the, cool you know, on the land of the sea. Yeah, so really cool. I taught you know both my younger brothers got into hunting through Lanai. So we did a couple of really really formative trips for them out there. And uh, what's neat is you get you know you get multiple opportunities. Generally, you know up in Alaska, if you if you blow a, a stock on a deer or you miss a shot, like well yeah, you blew it. You know the day's over. And mm-hmm. 
you know, Lynn, Lynn and I, if you're if you're out there, you're working hard, you get you get another opportunity, you'll find another one. And uh, if you grind it out, you can be successful. Uh, so as you know, for a new hunter or uh, someone who's looking for success, is is you have you got a good chance if you got um, you've got the athleticism and ability to kind of push through some heat and some some tough tough terrain. Yeah, I think I I think I could swing it. Hopefully, <laughs> at least uh, the training aspect. I can't speak to the the success of the hunt, but. Hopefully everything lines up, yeah. but uh, no, it's it's always piqued my interest. Uh, back in the early days of harvesting nature, one of our like very first riders is a, a guy named Justin Lee, and he's very, uh, very successful spear fisherman, and also does a lot of hunting now all over the United States. And like, but his home is Hawaii, and so a lot of a lot of the hunting we talked about in the very beginning uh, with him was was about hunting in Hawaii, and it's just like it was always amazed. He's like, yeah, wild pig and axis deer and you know, the sheep. He's like, it's just, it's all there. And I was like, that's so cool. It, it's pretty neat. It's a cool experience. It's definitely, I think the secrets out, um, you know, for better or worse as, as people now know, there's that, that, uh, the hunting access out there, but, um, it said it's, it's worth trying because I think you'll get hooked on it. I first time I went, I didn't I hadn't seen an access deer. Actually, we went there for Thanksgiving. Uh, Renee and our daughter and I was I saw one in the middle of the night in our backyard of our BRBO. I'm like, I'm like, what is that? You know, I just see this animal back there. And you know, there's access deer here, and I put in for the the state hunt, and I I drew a tag, and I was like a hunting animal I've never really seen. So mm-hmm. on the first day, I'm like, oh, there's an axe. That's what they that's what they look like. And <laughs> they have a really funny bark. It's almost kind of closer to a dog than a deer. And so you hear them kind of barking in the dark. And you're like, I think that's a deer. Like, and so that was you know that was day one. And you kind of obviously you know start figuring out and um, you get dialed in like anything else and and able to connect. And it's uh it was pretty special. Nice. And then you get to look at the ocean as you're packing it out, which is like phenomenal experience too. It is, but it's like it's it's hot weather hunting. So you have to, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's all about mitigating heat and and moisture, which is for most people, it's like you know, just hanging outside. Here, it's you're packing coolers with ice, and you're trying to get creative mm-hmm. to cool this meat down because it's hot out and it's windy and and this really fine um, red red dirt that gets in everything from your binos to to your rifle. And I've seen guys' rifles misfire. They had they had dust in it because huh. it's it's always blowing like 30 knots uh it kind of looks like the the landscape of mars uh you know it's a real i can't think of that red dirt look so it yeah it's tough on your gear like i have some destroyed hunting clothes from hunting the eye oh that's that's a good that's a good tip there <laughs> start start doubling up on some stuff yeah hot tip <laughs> so uh with the fishing there in the in the book you mentioned a little bit about your trophy marlin experience out there with your dad and your brother could you talk us through that a little bit yeah yeah that was a five-hour fight that uh that had a little more positive ending are all your fights five hours with fish i, I, I would like them not to be because it's uh <laughs> it's sort of a tough way it makes it work for it. but yeah it was just kind of the crescendo of a of a cool uh of a cool couple years out there i bought a boat it was a there's a smaller boat is a 19 foot center console, which you really need like a 24 foot boat in Hawaii. Um, you know, things about Hawaii is actually really rough. It's big water. Um, you know, there's this semi-permanent high pressure system, uh, that creates the trade winds and that's how, you know, the sailing ships would come out to Hawaii back in the day. Mm-hmm. But it means there's always like a 25 to 30 knot wind out of the East. So there's, you know, there's a four foot chop and then there's a, you know, a big swell in the wintertime might be a 20 foot swell, uh, you know, sometimes it's just a one foot swell, uh, but it's big water. And you're trolling at seven to nine knots, or you're, you're hitting the waves hard, and you're getting sprayed all day. And even you think it's why you're still getting cold, and you're you're getting wet, and you know you're earning it uh, every trip. Uh, so I had this said smaller boat. We go trolling. Uh, I lived on the eastern side of the island, on the windward side of the island, but a lot of times I have to trail an hour to the, to the leeward side just to find some some little better sea states to get out there. And uh, so I think anything else is, you know, had some other success, but, you know, wasn't really having the results I was hoping for and started making my own lures and, you know, buying the right gear. I had two Pin International 130s, you know, the biggest reels they make. And I had them, you know, loaded up with about a mile of line. And I, you know, reinforced my boat with uh, 
mahogany backing plates and, you know, 5200, these, you know, rod holders in there and they're all swivel rod holders. Uh, you know, so this was like a battle wagon now. And I, I made my own outriggers out of bamboo. Uh, oh, so wow. it was, you know, kind of cool. Like after buying a boat, I, I could not afford to buy, you know, a couple thousand dollar outriggers. I'm like, yeah. we can, we can functionally make the same thing here. So I ended up making my own outriggers out of bamboo. It had kind of a cool local feel to it. And uh, my boat was the Ohana Okai, which is the family of the sea in Hawaiian. You know, so we'd go oh, out cool. there and uh, work in the waters. My little brother, Patrick, moved out there the second year. I was out there um, for about a year and a half. And so we would go out, you know, most weekends and start hooking some mahi-mahi and tuna and um, had a lot of swing and misses on marlin. Marlin had a really bony mouth, and obviously that bill just makes them tough to hook. So you, you lose more than you land. Mm-hmm. Um but we, you know, we started having a little success, and then uh, my dad came out uh, in the spring. It was actually a week before we were going to Lanai to hunt access deer. Uh, dad came out. We, we did another run, and it was a slow morning, but I saw a couple birds, and you always, you know, chase the birds when you're trolling, and a couple white turns, nothing too exciting, and uh, one of my 130s just started, exploded, started dumping line. I remember looking back, like, Oh my god! I've never heard that reel make that noise, and all of a sudden this fish jumped up, kind of like paralleling our course, and it was like it was next to us. It was already it should have been a couple hundred yards behind the boat. And Patrick's like, "Is that our fish?" I'm like, "That's our fish." And I just have this picture in my head. I've never seen a fish like so big, you know, on its tail just walking across the ocean. It was not, you know, it wasn't even touching the water, and uh, it dumped. It probably took a five to eight hundred yard run, and uh, you know, just like in seconds and we're chasing with the boat at, at pretty high speeds and it just kind of goes in, you know, it goes in that story and, uh, we ended up, the fish ended up going down deep about 1500 feet and then it died. We think the hook was up underneath its jaw. So I think as it went down, it shut its, its lower jaw. And so it kind of suffocated. So I could now tell this was a dead fish. Um, and you want to kind of use the boat and start driving ahead and, and kind of playing it up but you know if you do that you're probably going to break the line so you know i'd kind of come too far at this point as a couple hours in we started just winching it in so we had three guys one guy was sitting on the other side of the boat as a counterweight one person would turn the handle one person would pull the line and uh on my reels i, I run a braided line uh, backing and then like a monofilament top shot which is pretty you know you get more line capacity so i had this mm-hmm. 200 pound backing which when it's under pressure is like piano wire. So, you know, we had our fingers wrapped up duct tape and gloves are still cutting through and we're all, our hands are bleeding and just, you know, taking one pull at a time and did this for hours. I think, you know, it took us a while to finally get up to the mono backing, which means I had about 326 yards of mono to go. And there's just one pull at a time, swishing through guys and just, you know, drifting out in the ocean. And we finally got this fish. It was just coming up. It was getting, it was getting heavier because obviously there's less, um, elasticity in the monofilament and I see like this big white shadow going around the boat and it's like starting to feel a lot like the old man in the sea like oh, oh that's, no that's gotta yeah. be a predator like your your heart just sinks you're like oh, I'm gonna get sharked like I've come too far and then you see it again you're like oh god so we're we're in beast mode and you know Patrick's a he's a really thick guy too and he's yanking on the rod and the, the boat gun was making this like really unusual sound that fiberglass shouldn't make and uh you know these stubby rods like broom handles are it's like completely flexed over so you know this was not sustainable and fine this fish came up and grabbed the leader it came up dead belly up and uh you know harpooned it got a got a gaff in it and we were it was the length of the boat it was about 16 and a half foot fish and you know an oh, eight, wow. 19 foot boat so we're, we're like oh should let's try to pull in the boat and we we pull this, you know, the fish up at the same time. It, it comes up like two inches. It's really just pulling the boat down two inches. We didn't, you know, it's like <laughs> not getting this in the boat. So we're, we end up side towing it in at like three knots and we're 15 something, 20 miles offshore. Like, it's like we're not getting in before dark. But luckily I saw a charter boat go by. Um, it was a Seahawk was the name of it. And I called him up the radio. I kind of told him the situation. He's like, yeah, man, we'll help you out. So these guys came around and uh, he's like, how big is it? I'm like, you know, you never want to like, over exaggerated. I'm like, I don't know, 250, 300 pounds. And he's like, how long have you been fighting for? I was like, since 9 a.m. He's like laughing. He's like, it's bigger than that, pal. And uh, <laughs> he, we, we kind of lasso the fish. We throw a line to him and he pulls it up through his tuna door. 
there's him and his mate, uh, Darren, uh, which I, they're good friends with now, and watch these two guys, like, this fish is not coming up, and they're trying to, you know, go back in and get a running start, and you see the fish coming out of the water, like, oh my god, this thing's huge, you know, it just keeps growing and growing, and they finally got it in for us, and they ran in the, uh, to Koala Basin, and we ran into the boat launch, I trailed him, and kind of met him over there, uh, and then, you know, we pulled in to where they had the, the fish hanging, and you just see in this thing, you know, it's just enormous and uh it was cool because my parents were in town it's my mom and my wife Renee and my kids came down there was after all the effort you put in for you know years of of working and and not finding the success you want to kind of see that hanging was just like proof that like you know what's dad been up to like that's what you know that's what your dad's been up to and it <laughs> nice. was just like a real it was a really proud moment as for a fisherman to kind of have that you know that diploma after all that working yeah that's a uh... Holy smokes! This could be hell of a fish. Yeah, that's that's a badass fish, <laughs> for sure. So yeah, there's some pictures of it in in your book. I mean, that thing's impressive. Yeah, we're, we're not gonna leak. We're not gonna leak the pictures. You got to go buy the book if you want to see the pictures <laughs> of the giant fish. <laughs> so, uh, Corey, do you, do you have any questions? Um, so you've fished in New England, you fished in Alaska, you fished in Hawaii. Where do you want to fish that you haven't fished yet? <laughs> That's a really good question. Uh, I don't know. You know, I actually haven't given that ton of thought. You know, I, I, in high school, I graduated high school in Ohio, so I got into like that Great Lakes fishery and the steelhead fishery out there. You guys have in Pennsylvania as well. And, uh, you know, I lived in South Carolina for a little bit and got to see the Southeast stuff. So, as far as just like the country goes, I, I think I've, I've got a pretty good taste of it. Caught some nice halibut and stripers in San Fran Bay. Um, so I don't, I don't have a great answer. I, you know, it'd be cool to, to do something like an Atlantic salmon trip one day to, to kind of chase that species. Um, and I really enjoy chasing salmon up here. Uh, and I'm, you know, getting, you know, the more you get them on the fly rod, you know, the harder it is to not fly fish for them. Uh, so I think I would, I mean, kind of keep doing what I'm doing is is keep working the Hawaii and Alaska back and forth with New England. Um, I'm pretty happy where I'm at right now in, the, in those fisheries. Nice. Well, if you ever want to get down uh, Florida Keys way or you want to <laughs> uh, come to Denver, let me know. We'll, we'll put together a cool trip. Uh, I like that. Yeah. You spearfish as well? I do, yeah. We, yeah, that was fun, especially in Hawaii. You kind of you definitely yeah. got to be able to spearfish. So we'd go out there and I just did, you know, there's, um, on the reefs there, there's, uh, you know, cigatera poisoning for some of the fish there. Mm -hmm. So I was always kind of cautious, but I like going out, we go out at night with, uh, headlamps and chase octopus, they call them, uh, taco and we'd spear octopus at night and either eat them or use them for bait. And, and that was really fun too, you know, doing the three prong Man, thing. I, I do miss spear fishing. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> So there, there's rumor that there is there's a small spear fishing community here in the Rocky Mountains that target because really? in Colorado you can shoot uh, pike and carp, but as I found out this summer moving out here, it's still very cold. The water is frigid <laughs> in the summertime in a lot of the lakes. So um, I think this next summer, once things start warming up again, I'm going to venture out and try to find some some not so cold lakes that kind of hold those. Cause I have, I still have all my spearfishing gear here with me. So we'll, we'll see, but, uh, <laughs> I, I miss awesome. it for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, well real quick, let's, let's run through this. We got a little bit of time. What's, uh, what's probably one of either your favorite fishes to eat or one of your go-to recipes. Ooh. So my favorite fish is pretty easy. So it's, uh, uh, yellowfin or big eye tuna, like doing a poke with it in you know, wine yeah. style. So it's kind of raw fish and you mix in soy sauce and sesame oil and green onions and, uh, and you mix that up and over rice. It, it's like, you feel great afterwards. Like, you know, it's at the, the cleanest protein on earth. So that's a, probably my, my favorite food ever. I think my kids too. Nice. Yeah. I, hands down. I, I love poke bowls for sure. It's good. I haven't had them in Hawaii, but it's on the list. <laughs> <laughs> you can do anything. I, mean, I was doing with salmon up here, even. Uh, you just like, got to be really careful with salmon. So you have to freeze it for about three weeks mm -hmm. uh, because uh, you'll get you'll get some 
uh, you get sick from it if you're not careful. But uh, it was it was really good. I was like, oh, I'm gonna start eating way more salmon this way. Oh yeah, we've done we did. Uh, I mean, quite a few different ones. You know, down in the Keys, we still get tuna down there, and then uh, uh, some of the the jacks. Um, you could do too as well. Uh, just depending, like you play around with it. Got some go-to poke recipes for sure, but man, it, it is good stuff. People get a little weirded out, but I'm like, it's it, come on, it, it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, well, uh, what's first off? Where where can folks go to get a copy of your book? Uh, yeah, so it's on uh, it's on Amazon, uh, it's in Target, um, so it's published by Pegasus Books. Uh, so you can go to their website and find it there as well. Um, and then it's I think a couple local um, uh, trying to think of the name of the bookstores. But if you go on my uh, website or social media, uh, I kind of list it all there for uh, folks to check out. So that's that's a great segue because that was my next question. What's what's your website <laughs> and uh, any any social media that's good for people to connect with you? Yeah, so um, it's at Sullivan Lures, like my last name, Sullivan. Sullivan Lures is uh, Instagram is uh, probably my strongest, and then uh, ConnorJSullivan dot com is just uh, the website. And it's, it's just kind of some links of um, where to find the book, and then just some gear recommendations that I'm using when I'm. I'm out there fishing for these various spots that hopefully is helpful for folks. Sweet. Yeah, well, definitely everybody should go check out both those, uh, you know, give Connor a follow on social media, and then if go visit the website, buy a book, obviously. <laughs> That's <laughs> uh, a good, good end result for this conversation. But um, so this is kind of the last part of the show where we give uh, everybody the opportunity for, like, a last comment or thought. So being that you're the guest today, do you have a, a last comment, thought, alibi, anything, question, wh- whatever you got? Yeah, well, I want to say first off is thanks for for having me. I know uh, your time's precious, and uh, feel pretty privileged to uh, to a major show. That's uh, that's pretty awesome. So thanks for having me. Thanks. Uh, but uh, yeah, as far as last comments, I just uh, you know tell people is you know the book's called Fishing the Wild Waters, but uh, you don't need to go to Hawaii or Alaska or New England to find your wild waters. And you know this is a a big beautiful country we have, and there's some really wild spots uh, you know really close to any city. You know I was catching. Uh, just beautiful steelhead in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, you know anywhere you look, if you're if you're a fisherman, you can find these special spots. Um, so go out there and, and pick up a rod, and you know step into a world that that most people doesn't even know exists in this country, and uh, just enjoy the intrinsic value we have of these these wild public waters, and you know keeping them clean and, and keeping the fish uh, fish stocks healthy is, is really important to be able to do this in perpetuity. Um, so uh, I hope. You have nothing else. This book inspires someone to to maybe uh, who hasn't tried this is uh, be inspired and and teach enough to said to go buy a rod and 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 learn something and maybe learn something about yourself as well. Awesome, great, great last thought, Corey. You got what do you got for us? Well, thank you for coming on, Connor. Thank you for uh, sending me your book. It's a yeah. good read. It uh, I read it before I fell asleep. For you know, a week there it was it was nice to uh, use that to relax at the end of the day. Read about somebody else's adventures. I I like adventure stories. It it's it's nice to read read about adventures. But like what you just said there, you know, those small places that you can find. I I think that's something. Yeah, something that needs to be told. You don't have to go to Alaska. You can find a right in your local waters so and uh and you're talking earlier about the things you've seen while fishing you know kodiak bears and the orcas and and the bald eagles you know soaring over overhead you know i being in pennsylvania i don't have whales or kodiak bears but you know or being cod out, or cod <laughs> <laughs> yes but you know, being out on the stream, you know, trout fishing with my dad or my kids, you know, we've seen, you know, you know, the fawns cross the stream or the, the bald eagle fly overhead or, you know, all these different things that, you know, if you weren't out fishing, you wouldn't see. So I just want to, you know, what you said is, is perfect. And um, anybody that doesn't fish, 
should should take it up just for for those reasons alone so but thank you for coming on and uh it was, it was great talking with you you bet same here yeah absolutely i i echo what Corey says thanks thanks for coming on it was good uh i do look forward to diving deep into the book uh i i will i will very very soon so actually i want to go on amazon tonight buy myself a christmas present uh so uh we'll i'll do that but no thanks for sharing the stories and uh just some awesome adventures i'm glad glad your hand's okay glad you made it through (laughs) that um and just uh really look forward to to living living your stories through the pages so uh as i said earlier congratulations on on your book it's a it's a big thing and uh i encourage everybody out there go visit connor's website purchase the book use amazon whatever way uh go to your local bookstore request them to get it in stock like all those things help out for sure and then uh make sure you go over to sullivan lures over on instagram give them a follow too and then after you've followed connor make sure you're following harvesting nature which hopefully at this point unless you're new to the show you have been that way you can stay up to date with all the, the cool fun exciting things that uh are going on here with us uh lots lots to come in 2022 we've been putting our heads together and uh i'm stay tuned i will say that uh the next episode i'll be announcing some cool exciting news of uh some awesome projects that we're going to be releasing probably the first quarter of 2022 and then quarterly after that so uh exciting news if you've stayed this long in the podcast episode you'll get privy to that uh if not it'll just catch you by surprise because you won't have heard this but um for everybody else uh please whatever podcast platform you're listening to hit that subscribe button make sure you catch all our latest and greatest episodes uh and as always uh please punch that five star button leave us a review tell us what we're doing wrong or you know tell us what we're doing right thanks everybody have a good night Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it, a life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby, 6-8 Western. Oh, a mule there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.